Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Uh, Tom Hartman here. Welcome to this uh, beautiful Tuesday here in Washington, D.C., and and, uh, many parts of the country, actually. Uh, A beautiful day. Uh, Speaking of beautiful days, uh, an interesting article over at uh, Common Dreams about how doom and gloom, you know, should, should we, should we even pay attention essentially to doom and gloom to, to, to articles, stories? Well, in this case, it's in the context of climate change. Uh, John Atchison wrote it. It's titled our aversion to doom and gloom is dooming us. And, uh, you know, he talks about this article in the New Yorker, uh, or New York Magazine, excuse me, The Uninhabitable Earth. We talked about this uh, a week or so ago when it first came out. And, you know, a fairly famous scientist said, there's no need to overstate the evidence, particularly when it feeds a paralyzing narrative of doom and hopelessness. And, uh, you know, what, what the author of this piece is saying is, sorry, there's nothing paralyzing about being told the truth. People get cancer diagnoses all the time, and they go out and do something about it. They get, you know, they get illness diagnoses and they do something about it. He says, you know, I prefer, he says, actually, I think I'm a realist. He says, I believe the understating the problems we face leads to understated and inadequate responses. He says, I also believe that when people are dealt with honestly, they've responded magnificently and will do so again if and when called. Witness World War II, for example, when Churchill told the Brits, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. In those words, he helped ignite one of the most noble and dedicated periods of unity and resistance in the annals of human behavior. And then he talks about how, you know, we all, you know, think about worst case outcomes. Uh, you know, I, I remember years ago back when there used to be, maybe there still are, I don't know. But there used to be people who would literally go door to door selling life insurance. And uh, I, I was a kid. I was at home. This guy, uh, he, was, he lived in our neighborhood, so my parents knew him, so they kind of let him in. And he sat there and he said to my, my dad and mom, you know, as I was sitting there, he said, you know, don't you want little Tommy protected in case, you know, the two of you die? I mean, you know, there's car accidents. There's awful stuff out there. You just never know. It's unlikely, but you just never know. Wouldn't you like to buy some life insurance? And I frankly don't remember if they did or not. I think they probably did. But um, in any case that, you know, we're we can deal with this. On the other hand, you can't undo an airplane crash. You can't undo a bridge failure. 
You know, 35 people died. No, it wasn't 35. It was I-35, wasn't it, in, uh, in, in Minnesota? Some number of people died, in any case, uh, who, you know, when, when uh, uh, Tim Pawlenty was governor and basically being a good Republican, refused to spend money to improve roads and maintain uh, infrastructure. I mean, that's the Republican way, after all. It has been since 1980. Didn't used to be, by the way. Dwight Eisenhower supervised the biggest infrastructure project in the history of the United States. Well, in the United States, anyway, at the time. And, uh, you know, the Eisenhower uh, National Highway System. But anyway, he's saying, yeah, there's a worst case scenario for climate change, and it involves there not being any more humans on the earth or a very small number of us. I mentioned yesterday over this over the last weekend, uh, we took uh, our our daughter and her boyfriend and their kids to see the. um, uh, What do you call it? Uh, Museum of Natural History here in Washington, D.C. We visited the David Koch wing on human origins and saw this huge wall display about how climate change has always been happening for hundreds of thousands of years. And in fact, climate change has sped up the process of human evolution, which is all true, by the way. Doesn't have anything to do with the climate change we're experiencing right now. Although maybe maybe that will spur human evolution. Who knows? But one of the things that, that they pointed out in that display was there was a time they didn't specify the time, so I can't tell you. I'm sorry, but, you know, this is kind of a soft science uh, place. But there was a time when the human population, actually, I've seen articles about this before, suggesting that it was around 100,000 years ago. But in any case, there was a time when the human population on, on Earth was down to only 10,000 individuals. And one of those females is the ancestor of all of us worldwide, all humans, all homo sapiens. And uh, so, you know, we've, we've been through some tough times as a species, and I'm, I'm guessing we'll make it through future tough times, but how and as what? So number one, I wanted to put that on the table. And, and you know, your thoughts on whether we should sugarcoat the news, particularly with regard to climate change. Second thing, I find this absolutely fascinating. This story broke yesterday afternoon in the Washington Post that uh, Donald Trump's son, Don Jr., and Jared Kushner had a meeting in the, uh, I guess it was in Trump Tower, this was during the campaign, with this Russian lawyer, Ms. Veselnikaya, and, as I recall, and the story was starting to break as Trump was getting aboard Air Force One in Germany to fly home from the G20. Or maybe it wasn't Germany, wherever, I think it was in Germany, wherever it was in Europe. He was flying home from the G20. And uh, his son was not on the plane with him. But the story was breaking. And so Trump gets his son on the phone. And actually, the way the story broke, apparently, was Kushner's lawyers were looking for meetings that he had had with Russians so that they could include them on the disclosure forms because Kushner was getting flack for not disclosing all his meetings with Russians. And his lawyers discovered this meeting with Veselnikaya and said, oh, my God, we've got to report this. And so then, you know, and we've so the argument that was made to Donald Trump by Don Jr. and Kushner's lawyers was, let's just tell the whole truth. Let's just put the whole thing out there. Because eventually it's probably going to get out there anyway. 
And they were organizing and planning this strategy of basically putting everything out there. You know, the fact that that uh, Veselnikaya had said or somebody representing her had said to John Jr., uh, you know, we've got the dirt on the Clinton campaign and and uh, we're going to bring it to you. And this is our, your gift from the Russian government, all this kind of stuff. Uh, that's what it was all about, right? They thought they were getting intelligence on Hillary Clinton. And, you know, which is pretty grim stuff. So anyhow, they're flying across the Atlantic and Donald Trump is looking at this and he says, no, 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 let's lie. I mean, he didn't literally say that, but essentially this is what happened. Donald Trump took over the process and he wrote that original memo to the New York Times, because this was all in response to a New York Times inquiry, uh, you know, to the Trump campaign about, did you guys really meet with this Russian woman and this Russian lawyer? And so Trump authored the lie that Trump Jr. submitted to the New York Times. Now, I bring all this up for two reasons. One, it strikes me that Trump writing a lie to conceal a meeting with a foreign government may well be the thing that he's impeached for. In fact, if I was predicting his impeachment, and I'm not quite there yet, but I'm getting damn close. If, uh, if I was predicting his, his impeachment, I in, actually, you know, last week, or maybe it was the week before I said, you know, within six months, there will be indictments from Mueller against Jared Kushner and Don Jr. And Trump will pardon them. And then he, you know, and, and then in order to avoid him, him you know, he, and, and then he himself will say, screw this. I'm, you know, I want to go back to being a billionaire. This is no fun anymore. And he'll resign and Mike Pence will be our president. That was my prediction. Um, I'm beginning to think that the Russians might put, uh, not the Russians, the, the, excuse me, the, the uh, Republicans in Congress may actually push that, may actually make that happen. And the key, the thing, and I've, I've said this many times, the thing to watch is Fox so-called news and average Republicans in the House and Senate. When Fox so-called news stops pitching Everything is Trump is doing is perfect. Everything is wonderful. Donald Trump, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and not even talking about things that might reflect poorly on Trump. When Fox so-called news starts actually reporting on the crimes of the Trump administration and, and things like this story, Trump will lose his base. When he loses his base, the Republicans who hate him by and large, I mean, he, you know, he just tweeted a couple days ago that the Republicans in the Senate were stupid. You think he's making friends? That the Republicans in the House and Senate are going to turn on him. And you will see articles of impeachment come in in the House. You know, they'll be, they'll be prepared by Democrats, but all, all they need is 30, 30 Republicans to go along with them. And, and, and frankly, up until the last couple of weeks, I had been thinking and occasionally saying here on the year, um, you know, Trump, Pence might be far more destructive than Trump because Pence is competent. He's, he, you know, he lies easily. He knows how to manipulate voters. He's been doing it most of his life. He's perfectly willing to lie to win elective office. Eventually, the people in Indiana started seeing through his lies. His popularity was down in the 30s when he was picked to be vice president. But, you know, the Pence could be very dangerous. But now that Trump is provoking nuclear-tipped powers, North Korea, China, Russia, uh, you know, and we'll see what else. I don't know. 
But now that Trump is actually provoking these countries, I, you know, I'm very concerned that this man could lead, and, and look at what's going on in the Middle East, that this man could lead us into World War III. I mean, I, that's a legitimate fear. So do you think that this would be the thing that Trump would be impeached about? Writing his son's lies to the New York Times. See, this, this seems to me like clear obstruction of justice. Keep in mind, Bill Clinton was impeached for telling a grand jury that he didn't have sex with Monica Lewinsky. And Clinton's rationale at the time was that the type of sex they had, which was not normal sexual intercourse, he didn't consider to be sex. He thought when they were asking about sex, they meant, you know, doing the thing. And, and he wasn't with Monica. He was doing another thing with her. And I mean, that was what he was impeached over. What he said to this grand jury, which was perjury. So here is Trump saying to the entire United States via the New York Times, through the mouth of his son, a bunch of lies. I, I don't see how that is not obstruction of justice. And I don't see how the Republicans won't eventually get to that. So we'll see. I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> as, as the great Zen master Mike Dirks often said, we'll see. But, uh, well, I guess we'll see. Your thoughts on this, my thoughts, more than usual. Welcome back to the Tom Hartman Program, and I am very pleased to have on the line with us the Iron Stash himself, Randy Bryce, candidate for Congress in Wisconsin's 1st District, uh, seeking to replace Paul Ryan. Yes, that guy. His website, Randy, R-A-N-D-Y, Bryce, B-R-Y-C-E, 4, F-O-R, Congress.com, Randy Bryce for Congress.com. And you can tweet him at Iron Stash, S-T-A-I-R-O-N-S-T-A-C-H-E. Uh, Randy, welcome to the program. Thank you much for, for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you. Happy Tuesday, Tom. Thank you. It's great having you with us. So you are uh, a father, an Army veteran, an iron worker, a cancer survivor, and the Democrat who is running for Wisconsin's first. Tell us a little more about yourself in that context. Well, I'm a... Basically, I'm a working person who, you know, I get up, I pack a lunch. I, the last 20 years, I've been literally building our community and looking over at what's going on as far as representation. Uh, we're not getting any of it. Paul Ryan, he's been absent from having any public. I, now, I was politifacted. I, I was claiming he's been absent for over 600 days having public town halls. He politifacted us. And so I have to make a correction. It's been over 650 days <laughs> since Paul Ryan has had a so much for that one, huh? Public town hall, <laughs> right? And you know, and he's also come out and say, saying he's not going to have any more. Yeah. And I think when your policies are so horrible that you're afraid to face the constituents of your district, there, uh, there's a problem. And it, it's time. I mean, if I don't show up for work, I'm going to get fired as an yeah. iron worker. And it's time to repeal and replace Paul Ryan. It's <laughs> time to repeal and replace Paul Ryan. I love it. We're talking to the Iron Stash, Randy Bryce. Randy Bryce for Congress is his website, uh, .com. Randy Bryce, B-R-Y-C-E, uh, for Congress, .com. Uh, this guy's the real deal, and you really need to check this out. Uh, Randy, there's a two-and-a-half-minute, uh, I was going to say heartbreaking, but actually it's in a way kind of inspiring uh, video on your website and, uh, you know, about uh, this, uh, you know, the, the, the medical struggles uh, in your family. You want to tell us about this? Sure. It's, we picked up a uh, health issue because, I mean, that's one of the things going on right now that 
Paul Ryan as Speaker of the House is, is trying to take away from us. Um, for me, I, I mean, it's an intergenerational issue. And in the video, we'll start with my son, a 10-year-old son, that, you know, even though I, I'm a cancer survivor and I was told I probably wouldn't be able to have children as a result of the surgery, um, he's a little miracle guy. He's 10 years old. I have to worry, you know, the iron workers are we're self-insured, and it's based on hours work. So come wintertime when we're not working a lot due to the weather, and he wants to go out and sled down a hill, I have to be concerned about, you know, can I let him be a kid? Um, it's also an issue for me because being a cancer survivor, and now that's something it happened through no fault of my own, but yet I'm going to, they want to penalize me as a result of, for surviving. That's my thanks for surviving cancer. Right. It's having a pre-existing condition. And then my mom, who she's the star of the video. And, you know, when I call her lucky to have insurance, I mean, how can you call somebody, you know, talk about them as being lucky when they've been diagnosed with MS for her, that's not just her ability to be healthy. That's her independence. That's, you know, my dad's not in the video. He's in assisted living, and he has Alzheimer's. So it's, you know, it's her independence to be able to go shopping on a daily basis. It's her independence just to go visit my dad. Mm. So it's, it's a huge issue. Yeah, it really and truly is. And, and uh, to stand up and take on Paul Ryan, I mean, this is something I'm guessing when you first started thinking about doing this, that uh, friends and advisors said, what, are you crazy? You know, this is like David going after Goliath. Uh, I mean, that worked out well, but uh, typically those kind of situations don't. Uh, what, what, led you, uh, what led you to decide that, you know, to, to go from being an iron worker to being a member of Congress, uh, hopefully, and, and, you know, we're all very supportive of that. We're talking to Randy Bryce, by the way, the Iron Stash, randybryceforcongress.com is his website. You can tweet him at Iron Stash, S-T-A-C-H-E, as in mustache, because Randy's got a mustache. Um, uh, and Randy's an iron worker, so Iron Stash. Um, so uh, tell me about the process. And, and, and in the process, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that you're telling this story might encourage other people to do what you're doing. So, so you know, feel free to get into, you know, the, the, the struggles, the concerns, the, you know, what worked, what didn't work. How, how did you get here? Well, I... I mean, I ran for office before, um, after, and this was after diving in the deep end of the political pool shortly after Scott Walker um, and the Banana Republicans came into power in Wisconsin. Uh, and they proceeded to just, you know, try to wipe out any kind of protections that workers had. And, and they're doing a pretty doggone good, good job of it. Um, but so I got, I got started doing that, and, and I've learned along the way of exactly what's needed for um, how to, you know, be better as far as political campaigns go. Um, but basically, it got to the point where I'm looking at it, and I'm like, we need more iron workers. We have enough lawyers and, and millionaires in Congress. It's time to have regular working people throw their hat in the ring. And who better to make decisions on our behalf than people that I work with, people that, you know, uh, other people that work, that, that go in and punch a time clock or work in a cubicle, drive a bus. Uh, people in the district had started reaching out to me because of my activism and saying you would be great, uh, you know, a great kind of person to, to run for office. You're, you know, Paul Ryan's kryptonite. And not that I'd really consider him to be a Superman of any kind. Um, but, you know, so it was people that started and then the Working Families Party approached me and said, you're the exact kind of candidate that we're looking for. Would you maybe think about it? Uh, and then state elected uh, Senator Larson, Chris Larson, asked me during the May Day march, 
um, in Milwaukee if I would consider running. And that's a big reason why I'm doing it, too. I'm, I'm hoping not just to take out Paul Ryan, but I'm hoping that other people see that who better to make decisions on behalf of working people than other working people. Yeah. It, it's not waiting for, you know, like the lesser of two evils to come up. And it, it's somebody who, who can you trust? And when somebody asks me, if, you know, do I know anybody in North Carolina running in their district? I, I respond with, you live in that district. Why don't you think about running? Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. Now, we, I believe that we know that the average income of Trump voters was in the neighborhood of 100 grand a year. Um, he was more elected by upper income, uh, by and large, white people than anybody else. But the mythology, the story that the media seems to love to tell is that working people, you know, uh, specifically white working people, um, made Trump president. Uh, you're an iron worker. You work with a bunch of folks. I'm guessing some of them are Trump supporters, uh, you know, with regardless of how much money they make. And uh, how's that, how's that, you know, are, are you being treated well by your fellow workers? What, what kind of response have you gotten from your friends and neighbors to uh, taking on arguably the most powerful, one of the, well, the third most power, excuse me, the third most powerful man in the United States, uh, Paul Ryan. I mean, you know, he's, he's uh, number, number two in line to the, to the White House. Uh, what kind of reaction? Well, I, I tried wondering other, you know, other iron workers, um, other members of our union, what's going to happen if you, it was like, are you seriously thinking about, you know, voting for Trump? Nothing says sticking it to the man, like voting for a billionaire. Right. Um, and, and he had a message. I mean, when you see him with this hard hat on talking to the coal workers, um, he had a message that I can see how it resonated with, with working people, but I, I encouraged everybody to look him up, look up his history. He's had a, a history of stiffing workers, um, and, and now, to be honest, on a job site, those those few people that I know voted for Trump, they try to hide behind a column or something when they see me coming. Oh, really? Um, and yeah, and and I I will talk to them, and I'll you know, they're kind of hanging their head. I was like, can you name one thing, just one thing? I'll leave you alone. One thing that Donald Trump has promised you that he's made good on, and, and they can't. And they're like, you know, Randy, um, you're right. And it's there's a lot of buyer's remorse going on right now in our district and and on the job site. Yeah. Do people in Wisconsin get it how toxic Paul Ryan is? They do. Um, And especially this health care bill that he's, you know, that he's trying to push. Um, And it it has nothing really has nothing to do with health care other than taking it away from people. And people are aware that he's taking things away from us. And he's just pushing for rich people to get even richer. Right. Um, and that's, that's that in addition to needing to invite Congressman Mark Pocan to come have town hall meetings so we can find out what's going in Washington, so we can find out how this is affecting us, because Paul Ryan refuses to do so. Yeah, that's marvelous. Uh, yeah, uh, Mark Pocan is a regular on our show. And, uh, you know, so, so when he comes into, into your district, into Paul Ryan's district, uh, do you show up with him? Absolutely. Well, I, I show up in the audience, not yeah. on stage with them. But yeah. you know, I listen to get information and yeah. and ask questions. Um, and I've been to I've been to two of the events that he has, and they're they're just packed with people that are are just dying to find out how this is going to affect us. People are scared. Right. Yeah. And with good reason. With good reason. Right. It's uh, so. So, what is the big biggest challenge that you're facing right now in your attempt to unseat Paul Ryan, Randy uh, well, Randy Bryce? I, 
money's going to be a big factor. Uh, and I, but I think we're just looking at it realistically. We're not trying to outraise or, you know, outspend what Paul Ryan's going to do. It's just, it's just getting our message out to people. And, and we've been having a lot of, we're over, let's say 23,000 donors now, people that have contributed to our campaign. Um, we're raising money at a, at a great level. And, and it's, it's about getting enough money together to, to get our message out, which we're going to be successful doing. And there's, you know, the support around not just the first congressional district, but the entire country has been just so overwhelming. Um, and because what he's doing, you know, he's, he's Speaker of the House, but he's not Speaker of Working People's Houses. Right. And he's apparently not representing Wisconsin very much if he's refusing to do town halls, he's refusing to talk right. to his constituents. I mean, that, that uh, you know, if I was in Wisconsin, I mean, this is, that's what took down uh, Eric Cantor, you know, uh, right. who was the number two most powerful Republican in the House of Representatives. And he just never went home to his district. He never did anything. And, and he thought he could just surf through and David Bratt ate his lunch. Now, that was on the Republican right. side, you know, ironically. But there is something to be said for actually, uh, you know, defending, defending your people, you know, def defending your, your uh so uh, uh, the, the information I have, we're talking with Randy Bryce. The website is Randy Bryce, uh, R-A-N-D-Y-B-R-Y-C-E, for F-O-R, Congress.com. And uh, the Twitter handle is at Iron Stash, I-R-O-N-S-T-A-C-H-E. And uh, is there any place else? You have a, a Facebook page, Randy? We also have a Facebook page, Randy Bryce. Um, Randy Bryce 2018 is uh, simple to find us on Facebook. Okay, great. Randy Bryce. So you look at these, the 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 the, uh, the monster slayer. I don't know how it exactly. We'll see how it all works out. Randy, I wish you the very best. The door is always open Thank here on this program. Thanks so much for being Thank with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure talking with you. Good talking with you. We'll be back. Welcome back, Tom Hartman here with you. Okay, there was a uh, uh, DEFCON 25, this convention where they, uh, you know, it's, it's all about hacking. And of course, any convention that's all about hacking is going to check out hacking voting machines. And sure enough, they did it. This is a clip from DEFCON 25. This is clip one, Chris. This is a clip from DEFCON 25 showing how easily and how quickly and these were not like, you know, government NSA guys. This is this is just, you know, your average civilian hackers, how easily and quickly they hacked voting machines. Uh, the first hack was uh, a uh, professor from Denmark who was able to take control remotely over Wi-Fi. I haven't touched the machine. So here, this is the machine. You can ping it. Okay. It says, hello, I'm there. You select our exploit. Okay. And we're in. <laughs> okay. The win vote was used in Virginia from 2003 to 2015 when it was decertified. The encryption key. This is bizarre. The encryption key for these vote for the voting machines that, the, that this guy just hacked into was ABCDE. Brilliant. It's like the DNC having the password of password. I mean, really? Uh, here's here's. Uh, Clip number two, this is showing manipulation of the polling book, which is uh, equally spooky. Check this out. This is the binary, and then over here you can see the names, and there are redundancies, which means uh, I think almost definitely each one of those is one write-in vote. The actual vote names are in plain text in there. It is very, very accessible. You can get right in, write whatever data. If you have access to this card, mind you, it's a card that's inside the machine. 
but if you can get access to that card, you can make it say whatever you want. If 13 states use the Sequoia AVC. Most shocking of all, everything we discovered is basically still out there alive and vulnerable. Yeah, everything that they discovered is still being used. Do we have time for clip three? Yeah, it's 30 seconds, so let's go for it. Here's clip three. Maybe not. So these guys with this electronic poll book are, have already gotten access to the database. We can add fake voters, subtract voters from the voter record, vote multiple times. They own the database. Thank you, VMware. Good job. <laughs> the poll book attack is actually one of the things that I personally am most concerned about. One of the biggest threats to, to voting is to just make it so that there's chaos in the precinct on election day. These guys could now do that if they, if they wanted to. So dozens of states use e-poll books. So who, who needs Chris Kobach, right? Just your standard garden variety American hacker can get into pretty much any of the voting machines in the United States and the poll books, which is the list of voters and how they voted. So you can flip elections, you can change elections. And big question, have Republicans been doing this since 2000? Welcome back, Tom Harbin here with you. And uh, by the way, another another big story that is happening today uh, that I hadn't mentioned up to this point, and uh, actually, I've got I've got like an inch and a half thick of pa stack of papers here that, that uh, have stories that I wanted to get into today, um, and this is halfway through it. But is the Seth Rich story? There is now a lawsuit, and you know, once you get a lawsuit, you get lawyers involved, you get discovery, you get testimony under oath, you get the possibility of perjury. Lots of stuff comes out as a result of lawsuits that doesn't just come out as a result of publicity. And what this lawsuit is alleging, if I'm understanding the reporting correctly, is that the Trump White House and Fox so-called news conspired to create a false narrative about how the DNC emails got delivered to WikiLeaks. The story out there was that the Russians did it and uh, that's, you know, broadly accepted, whether it was the Russian government or whether it was Russian hackers, whether they were hired by Paul Manafort or whether they were hired by Putin. No, you know, in as far as I can tell, nobody really knows for sure. But the, you know, the, the conventional wisdom, certainly in democratic circles, is that the Russians were behind it. And so the Fox News, you know, what they wanted to do, what they, and the, what the Trump White House wanted to do, was to say, no, it wasn't Russia, and no, it was it was this guy. You know, we need to find somebody to pin this on. It's like, you know, the search for a patsy. Oh, yeah, Lee Oswald, he's the guy. And the guy that they settled on was this 27-year-old kid who worked for the DNC, whose name was Seth Rich, and who was murdered in an apparent uh, robbery gone wrong or whatever here in Washington, D.C. And by the way, that's not all that uncommon. I mean, it's it's largely uncommon, but it's not... You know, in any big city, you get, you know, people get killed. And so, you know, he was walking home one night, but it was, you know, late at night. It was, as I recall, around one or two in the morning and somebody came up to him and shot him dead. And so Fox so-called news, Fox News and the Trump White House said, hey, let's pin it on him. And they invented this story, as far as anybody can tell, out of thin air that that Seth Rich was the guy who stole the emails from the DNC and delivered them to WikiLeaks. And if this is true, and it appears that it is, I mean, there's a, this, this substantial lawsuit against Fox News by a Fox contributor 
saying, you guys just made this thing up to make Trump look better and take the so-called Russia heat off him. If this is true, then they got some splaining to do. So you got that. You got Jeff Flake pushing back on Donald Trump. You've got all these stories. You've got, you know, the, the mooch, you know, now we've got a new unit of time, uh, you know, 10 days, a mooch. You got all this stuff going on and uh, all of it reflecting very poorly on Donald Trump himself. Mike Pence has been keeping his head down. I'm convinced that Pence or his office is the source of many of the White House leaks. I mean, particularly when I saw this Washington Post piece where they're talking about what's going on in the front of Air Force One. I mean, who knows that other than the president and the vice president? And so, you know, if, if you've got any kind of a connection to the White House, you might want to let them know that they should check out Mike Pence and don't go to officialmikepence.com because it will curl your hair. Um, so anyhow, that's just some more of the news going on. Meanwhile, in Wisconsin, you know, we had the Iron Stash on here a little earlier, and he's he's running to replace uh, uh, Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan's um, friend in Wisconsin, Scott Walker, the governor, wants to give Foxconn, a Taiwanese company that does business in China that manufactures for Apple and other companies, wants to give Foxconn a million dollars per job created to create a couple thousand jobs in Wisconsin that will pay around 50 grand a year. And that's at the very high end. Probably a lot of these jobs will pay 20 or 30 grand a year. And they want to give them waivers from environmental rules. It's, uh, it's, pretty, stra- it's pretty strange. It's a pretty shocking story, actually. What's, what's happening in Wisconsin right now is crony capitalism at its most evil the corruption of government at its most evil. And, and of course, you know, Walker and all the Republicans in, in Wisconsin, I mean, they're there because of outside money from out-of-state billionaires, by and large. So, you know, if they're willing to take money from them, why wouldn't they take money from Foxconn or why wouldn't they give money to Foxconn, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, corruption, in other words, corruption is nothing new for the Republican Party in Wisconsin. But this is like nothing anybody has ever seen. There has never in the history of the United States There has never been a community, at least from the news reports I'm reading, that has given this much money per job, a million dollars per job, to a company to come to their community. And not just any company. This is a a Taiwanese company. So all of the profits generated in Wisconsin are going to go where? No, not to Wisconsin. Sorry. They're going to go to Taiwan. Brilliant, Scott Walker. Brilliant, Paul Ryan. Good on you guys. Shoot yourself and all of your constituents in the foot. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you and very happy to have on the line with us Dr. Baz Dressinger. Uh, Dr. Dressinger has a new book out. It's called Incarceration Nations, A Journey to Justice in Prisons Around the World. And uh, extraordinary. He's a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and City University of New York, journalist, advocate, activist, author of, of this book, uh, available at, you know, Amazon and all the other, uh, you know, any bookstore, Incarceration Nations. Dr. Dressinger, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. You know, it was uh, Michael Moore's movie, uh, Where to Invade Next, that first uh, introduced me to the idea that Norway had something, uh, knew something about prisons and policing that we didn't. Um, I understand that as part of your book, you you uh, you traveled to Norway or you studied their prisons? 
I did. I visited two prisons in Norway, and absolutely, Norway Norway actually has a radical notion uh, that social services can prevent crime in the first place, and then when crime does occur, uh, Norway treats it quite differently from the way we do. So tell us about it. How, you know, what, what does that, those are kind of generalities. What, how does that translate into actual behavior? How, how would the police, how, how would a, uh, uh, you know, an interaction with police in Norway be different from an interaction with police in the United States? And how does the experience of going to prison in Norway differ from the experience of going to prison in the United States? So for one, the fact that there is readily available social services in Norway means that fewer people are going to be locked up. There's more, it's a much more equal society than almost any society on earth. So there's very little poverty. It's essentially a wealthy socialist nation. So that right there is already going to limit the interactions that people are having with police and their likelihood to commit crime, because we know that crime is, is correlated with high rates of inequality, hence our crime problem in this country. But once somebody actually does commit a crime in Norway, more likely than not, prison is going to be the last resort. There are other kinds of methods. There are fines uh, and other kinds of restorative justice grounded uh, approaches to crime. Like and community someone, service kind of things, you mean? Yes, exactly. And then if someone is sent, uh, 30% of, of Norway's prison system, and actually this is common throughout Scandinavia, is what's called an open prison. And that means that they, uh, the individuals inside can come and go, can work jobs on the outside, and are treated like human beings throughout. So they are incarcerated, but they can remain connected to family, they could remain connected to community, receive the same social services that they were receiving on the outside, uh, and therefore, A, have the chance to actually be corrected in a correctional system, and B, when they come home, more smoothly reintegrate into society. And even in prisons that are not open in Norway, I visited one that, the one that is in Michael Moore's film, Bastoy Island, which is quite unique and, and quite dramatic, but uh, Halden Prison, which is the other one I went to, was a more traditional prison with walls and uh, confined spaces, but yet there, there's an enormous amount, again, of corrections happening. There are courses in almost everything. Uh, again, there is this principle of treating individuals who are incarcerated like human beings, and that itself is a very radical notion and also a simple one at the same time. In our prison system, it seems that the people who work in the prisons are uh, kind of the the bottom of the bottom of the pile in the criminal justice system, yes. and uh, not only treated poorly but paid poorly. And my understanding is that among the for-profit private prisons in the United States, it's even worse than in state prisons where people can actually have a union and a and a you know a, a reasonable job with a pension. Um, uh, a is that the case? And B, how does that compare with how they how they hire and train and compensate people who work in their prison system in Norway versus the United States. So absolutely, that is the case, and it's a tragic case. I often liken it to the education system, where if we have good teachers, we have the foundation of of a good education system. Well, if we have good corrections officers and good policemen and women, then we have a good justice system. But unfortunately, in the U.S. and throughout much of the world, it's considered a low-level, not respected, not well-paying job. And so you're not recruiting the best people that you could be, the folks who are passionate about justice and who want to do this work. And the, the Norwegian system, which was just incredible to witness, 
uh, involved is it's quite the opposite. It's a very well respected job to be in a corrections officer. I visited the staff training academy in Oslo and uh, learned that there it's a very competitive job. It's a well paying job, and corrections officers are really thought of as educators, and so it attracts a very high caliber of individual. And I met many of these in both the prisons I was visiting in Norway, and was struck by how they were more like social work and social workers, and rather their training is actually not in sort of military operations. Our In the U.S., our corrections officers go through a very short training period, and much of it is essentially in military operations. In Norway, the folks are trained in philosophy, social work, psychology, law, um, really an in-depth, several-year-long training process uh, that is going to ultimately produce the kinds of people that can, again, engage in corrections. Hmm. Um, I'm assuming that Norway isn't the only country in the world that's figured this out. No, it is not. And um, by no means, I, I certainly don't want to leave the impression that Norway is a utopia where everything is perfect. That's certainly not the case. Nowhere is a utopia. They have their issues as well and their problems. But throughout Scandinavia, we see open prisons. We also see them in the Netherlands and Germany. There are uh, pockets of really interesting things happening in those countries. There are also even versions of them in Australia, a system I'm quite critical of, uh, but does have something. I recently visited a pre-release center in Australia that allows individuals, again, to come and go and, and remain connected to the community before they come home. Well, so, we have places called halfway houses. Are, is that essentially what you're describing? No, a halfway house is for someone who's come home already and served his or her time. Uh, and so um, it's it's really quite different. This is a scenario in which the walls of the prison are, are porous and someone can come and go while still serving his or her time and remain. Well, no, what I, what I meant is if our halfway, if we took our halfway houses and said, OK, these are no longer halfway houses for when people are you know returning home. And these are our prisons now. Is that, would, would we be replicating their system in any way? Well, that, that's not a bad idea, except for the fact that many of our halfway houses are, are utterly bereft. Um, yeah. They don't have strong programming. They're uh, in communities that are not conducive to corrections. Their conditions are very bad. And so I wouldn't think, I think that's one of the crises of the reentry issue is the fact that people are coming home to scenarios where they don't have a safe place to live, they don't have productive work, and we discriminate against them at every turn. And halfway houses and three-quarters houses and other kinds of housing, unfortunately, for the most part, are not, uh, are, are just, not good things. Yeah. It's the, in other words, the entire system from top to bottom in the United States is broken, underfunded, underrespected, underpaid, and, uh, and, and destructive to our society as a whole. Am I being hyperbolic? No, you're 100% correct. And I think we, uh, increasingly, there is more awareness of this reality, which is nice to see. Mm -hmm. um, but we're still, I mean, we're locking 2.3 million people up in this country. There are 10 million people locked up worldwide. Over 3 million of them haven't been convicted of anything. They're awaiting trial. Um, that's an enormous number. So yeah. when we're talking about this as a crisis, it is no hyperbole. It's absolutely a crisis. So uh, do you see, uh, we're, we're talking with Dr. Baz Dressinger. Am I saying your name right? The Baz Dressinger. Baz Dressinger. Thank you. Uh, my no apologies. Dr. No Baz Dressinger and uh, professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, uh, City University of New York, and uh, has a new book out, Incarceration Nations, A, a Journey to Justice in Prisons Around the World. 
Um, Dr. Dressinger, are you seeing any glimmers of hope here in the United States? I see glimmers of hope almost everywhere. There's something because I think there are like-minded progressive people who recognize that the system, A, doesn't work and B, is, is morally bankrupt. So in the U.S., we're, we're certainly seeing, and this is in part due to the popularity of films like 13th, even Orange is the New Black, the, the book The New Jim Crow, things that have brought this issue to a mainstream place, which is very exciting. So we're seeing a movement towards, number one, bail reform and bail as an issue and jails and the conversation around, again, pretrial detention, mm. hitting the mainstream and the elimination of cash bail in certain states like New Jersey, um, which is exciting and, and you know, very promising. We're, we certainly see a return to some educational programs. That's great. It's a great sign. Great, great signs. Dr. Dreisinger, thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure. Thank you. Uh, the book is Incarceration Nation. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have the latest news and information from Wall Street and Main Street, all points in between, plus best of the rest of the news. And don't forget, democracy begins with you. Get out there, show up, participate, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.